Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, October 7th. I'm Terry Aranga, and my illustrious guest, hot off the presses, is Chantal Cecile Kira on the release date of her newest book entitled, Autism Life Skills, From Communication and Safety to Self-Esteem and More, 10 Essential Abilities Every Child Needs and Deserves to Learn. Chantal's first book, Autism Spectrum Disorders, The Complete Guide to Understanding Autism, Asperger's Syndrome, Pervasive Developmental Disorder, and Other ASDs, was the recipient of the 2005 Autism Society of America's Outstanding Literary Work of the Year Award and was nominated for the 2005 Penn Martha Albrand Award for First Nonfiction. The UK edition was the winner of the 2003 San Diego Book Award for Best in Health. Chantal's second book, Adolescence on the Autism Spectrum, A Parent's Guide to the Cognitive, Social, Physical, and Transition Needs of Teenagers with Autism Spectrum Disorders, was awarded the 2006 San Diego Book Award for Best in Health Fitness. Chantal is an international speaker and advocate who has been involved with autism spectrum disorders for over 20 years as both a parent and a professional on both sides of the Atlantic. Chantal raised her son in France, the U.K., and California, a former researcher on BBC documentaries and a line producer on a TV series in Paris. Chantal currently hosts radio shows in English and in French on Autism One Radio. She is the U.S.-Canada Marketing Director for the Autism File magazine and writes the Autism Files Ask Chantal column. Chantal's family has been highlighted in the Newsweek cover story, Growing Up with Autism, and featured in the MTV documentary True Life series, I Have Autism, which was the recipient of a 2008 Voice Award. Chantal is active in many nonprofits and served on the Task Force on Transitional Services and Supports, reporting to the California Legislative Blue Ribbon Commission on Autism. Chantal's website is www.chantalcecile-kira.com. Chantal, first, please tell us how the book release event for Autism Life Skills went yesterday, and thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show, Terry. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, so since my book was coming out today uh, in all the bookstores, yesterday we had a book launch for, well, actually for both the book and the magazine, The Autism File, which also premiered this month, uh, actually in September, I should say in major bookstores in America and Canada. But I always organize a book launch when I have a book coming out because it's so much fun and it's a great way to create community awareness. So what I normally tend to do is have um, the owner of a restaurant I know um, offer to provide uh, 20 or to donate 20% of whatever monies he makes in the bar that evening to an autism organization and uh, then I just invite a lot of people to come, and uh, I get press in the paper and on TV. And what's great is you get this mix of people who have come who are new parents who want information on autism, but then community members who are just intrigued because they, they want to know more about 
these local people who are all involved in autism. And then you just get the walk-ins that would normally be at the bar. And so it's just wonderful because you get to introduce all these people and you actually get to help others who have no other way of getting autism information. And did you say that proceeds from this event were donated to an autism organization? Yes, 20% of uh, the money that was spent in the bar lounge area between 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock was donated to the Autism Research Institute. That's excellent. And they're, yeah. down, they're down in San Diego, aren't they? Yes, they are, which is why I picked that charity. They have, um, or that nonprofit, I should say. Uh, they're down here in San Diego. The Autism Research Institute was founded by Dr. Bernard Rimland, who is the one who um, started the whole Dan movement, Defeat Autism Now. And uh, he's a man close to my heart, and I like to support the work that he's done. Absolutely. That's a great way to help kids worldwide plus keep it local. Exactly. And what was really good last night is I can uh, think of five people who came in uh, who came because they saw and heard about this either on TV or in the newspaper and said, oh, I need some information. I want some information for my child. One was a mother of a child that she adopted who was four and a half, and she didn't know where to turn. She had just gotten the diagnosis and just happened to see that this event was happening. Another mother, she's actually a parent of a 21-year-old who has Asperger's, but she came thinking, okay, autism life skills, maybe I can get some tips on how to help my son. Someone else got the information in a pediatrician's office somehow. And so it's really great to be able to introduce those people to people who are there from, who were there from like the Autism Research Institute or other autism organizations. Well, that is really great, too, and it's appropriate, Chantal, because your books in some total address all levels of uh, functionality, more able, less able, all levels of impairment uh, across the autism spectrum. Um, so it's appropriate for all those ages and all those levels of uh, functionality that you mentioned from your guests there. So how does your new book, Autism Life Skills, differ from your first two books, Autism Spectrum Disorders and Adolescents on the Autism Spectrum? That's a good question, Terry. The way it differs is that um, the first two books were really based on research that is out there. And then I kind of um, uh, read everything that was out there, and then I re put it down into resume for form that was easy for people to understand and read to make a practical application of what they were understanding. And then I had personal opinions of people in food for thought boxes. This book is different because my son Jeremy is now 19, and when, well, when I started writing this book, he was 17. And, you know, you're really in the transition years planning for the last few years that they're in the education system, and you're wondering what you should be doing to prepare them for adulthood. And you have your own ideas. Your son has his ideas, and then the professional's have ideas as well. So trying to decide what are the right things to do. And you also start questioning, have I done the right thing raising my child? And I think all parents do that when they have uh, any kind of child. I mean, my daughter, Rebecca, is 16, and I think, am I being too lenient? Am I being too strict? What should I have done differently when she was little? So then I thought, well, who better to tell me or to give me advice on what was important uh, to them when growing up but people on the spectrum, adults, and um, teenagers who have grown up with autism and 
who are successful, I hate to use that term successful because it is uh, depending on what people mean by successful, but successful to me in this case meant that they were happy with where they were, um, they'd acquired certain skills that helped them in real life. And I asked them, what would you have liked to have seen differently when you were growing up? What helped you in growing up? And then what strategies have you learned now as an adult that you wish you'd known sooner? And that's where this book came out of. And out of that, I distilled 10 abilities that kept popping up everywhere. And I interviewed people who were on the very able end of the spectrum to those who are um, very impacted by autism and who are nonverbal but have some form of communication such as typing or pointing to letters on a letter board. Well, I really uh, I like how you mentioned um, that you took into account that your son has his own ideas um, I know that your son has many significant challenges, but you wanted to take into account his own ideas um, with respect to what he wanted for his future. That's right, and I'm so lucky that I've managed to find a way to communicate with Jeremy. I mean, it wasn't just luck. It was hard work, but I know a lot of people work uh, very hard to find a way to communicate um, with their child, and they don't get there, but... I was really lucky because with Jeremy, with the rapid prompting method, we were able to teach him. Um, first, it's an academic way. Uh, well, it's a way of teaching academics, but from that, we were able to teach communication. So that was so important to knowing what he really wanted because he was able to say, I want cheese or I want ride, I want car, but that was about it. And the important part uh, is that Jeremy's teacher during his high school years, Alan Gustafson, is the best teacher anyone could ever want for any kind of child. And he had prepared a transition interview with Jeremy that he did over a few months. And I didn't um, remember about this until I was writing the book and there was an IEP coming up and I was reviewing all the documents. And I came across this interview and I went, oh, my gosh, this is just like what these adults have been talking to me about. And so I ended up putting parts of Jeremy's interview with his teacher at the beginning of each chapter because it really reflected what was important to people on the spectrum. Absolutely. And there was an, a beautiful quote that you put in the beginning of the front matter, a beautiful quote from Jeremy, and that was, the unrealized potential of my dreams makes me master of my future. Yeah, you know, uh, when Jeremy wrote that, it was, we were doing homework, and then he just kind of stopped, and he didn't really want to do anything, and then he wrote that, and I thought, well, that doesn't really have anything to say with the homework that we're doing, and then I realized, oh, you know, this is a separate thought, and, you know, because you don't have tone of conversation or tone of voice to go by when people are typing, and so it's hard to know what the train of thought is sometimes. And then I realized, oh, my gosh. So then I started asking around, is this something somebody picked up in a book? I looked on the Internet because I wondered maybe he was just repeating something he heard in class. But, no, it's actually his own quote. And uh, he, he does that. Sometimes he just um, talks about, you know, his basic needs, and then he does homework, academic things, you know, so it's kind of resume or repeating what he's heard. But then he comes out with these uh, knockout statements, and um, it just makes me realize how much is going on upstairs with him. And I like how you alluded to when you were uh, speaking a little bit ago, Chantal, um, uh, you were talking about 
transitions now in that interview with Jeremy's teacher, but how you alluded to the fact that these things need to be started uh, way earlier than when you're finally thinking about moving from high school to the workforce or other situations. Right, and that's why this book really uh, any parent of any age child could use and find useful, but it's really a good idea, I think, to start a lot of these things when they're very young because a lot of the adults said to me, I wish I would have known this sooner or this would have been so much more helpful. And, and uh, Go ahead. And so uh, that's why I think that this book is very practical for uh, parents of young children as well. Absolutely. And more with Chantal Cecile Cura when we come back to Voice America. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within. Your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Chantal Cecile Cura, author of the new book, Autism Life Skills, From Communication and Safety to Self-Esteem and More, 10 Essential Abilities Every Child Needs and Deserves to Learn. And I'd like to take a moment to read a comment in the front of the book. 
This one is from Michael Carley, Executive Director of GRASP, the Global and Regional Asperger Syndrome Partnership. Quote, no parent author of a significantly affected child with autism has listened and learned from adults on the spectrum more than Chantal Cecile Cura. In this, perhaps her most useful book, she shows us how these long-ignored experts have greatly enhanced her ability to help her son, Jeremy, achieve a happy and purpose-filled life. Bravo, Chantal. So, Chantal, in this book, Autism Life Skills, you cover sensory processing, making sense of the world, communication, safety, self-esteem, pursuing interests, the all-important art of having fun, self-regulation, independence, social relationships, self-advocacy, and earning a living. Why did you choose to start with sensory processing, making sense of the world, which is the longest chapter? Because, and this was a big surprise to me, everyone that I spoke to had uh, major issues with sensory processing when they were younger. Uh, and it kind of makes sense because your sensory processing is how you make sense of the world. And so that colors everything else because children discover um, everything about the world about them. When they're little tiny babies, they put things in their mouth, they touch things. So if your senses aren't giving you back the correct information about what is around you, then you can't really understand very much about what's going on in the environment. You can't make a sense, put a sense to it. And But I was amazed by how much sensory processing affected so many people on the spectrum, especially on the more able end. And I realized, uh, and of course I'm making generalizations here, so it's not true for every single individual, but I can give you a couple of examples here how people who are on the, uh, who have Asperger's or high-functioning autism were very affected by sensory processing. Uh, for example, uh, Brian King, uh, who has a, uh, who's a licensed clinical um, social worker, and he has a um, private practice in Illinois near Chicago. Uh, he is very affected by sensory processing, and he explains um, many things about how it colors everything from knowing how to go around a new place. So when you're transitioning from elementary school to junior high, it's hard because you have to change different classes every couple of hours. You have different teachers. You have all the noise in the hallways. Uh, the other thing is, and this explains some of the things my son does. For example, uh, my son has a red neck from the sun beating on the back of his neck. And you know, I never really thought about it, but he's always looking down. And Brian King explains that... Uh, when he is walking, he has to look down because otherwise he loses his balance. And he explains this by the fact that he says that his visual processing is not connected to his proprioceptive sense, so that where his body is in space and his visual processing is not connecting, which makes it hard for him to keep his balance. And that made me realize some things about Jeremy. Another example is uh, I'm in the middle of an interview with a um, young woman with Asperger's, and her cell phone goes off, and she gets up to go. She says, I'll be right back. And she comes back a few minutes later, and I said, you know, everything okay, because I assumed she had a phone call from home. And she said, oh, I just went to use the bathroom. I said, excuse me? She said, yeah, I set the alarm to remind myself to use the restroom when I'm out in public, because when I'm in situations like this where it could be noisy and overwhelming, I can't feel my body. 
So then I started asking other adults, and many of them explained that they use the same kind of technique because they do have a hard time tuning into their body if they're overwhelmed with trying to figure out um, what all the noise is, what, what all the lights are, what it is they're looking at, what they're hearing. And I realized that some of the issues that we think is really uh, just a part of being severely impacted by autism affects some of the people on the more able end of the spectrum, but they're, they're able to compensate. For example, my son, when he has uh, problems with remembering to use the bathroom or feeling his body, he can't take a watch, set the alarm, or take a cell phone, set the alarm, and, you know, go about his business and then remember to use the bathroom, whereas someone who's on the more able end can do all of that. They have the wherewithal to put that all together. So uh, that, those are just little examples, but uh, that's what I enjoyed so much about speaking to people on the spectrum was it helped explain a lot of things that my son is unable to explain to me, but yet can solve some of the um, questions that I have about why my son does something, some certain things. And Chantal, what kind of impact do you think that uh, this should have on a child's learning environment? Um, you know, for example, you're, you're bringing out the fact that we must respect uh, these children in total. And, for right. example, in a classroom setting, what kinds of accommodations should they have a right to? Well, for example, if you're talking about a child who is, or a student who is in a um, special education classroom, we have to be really careful that the fluorescent lighting is either absent or uh, not very high and uh, not, not the not covering the whole room, that perhaps if someone's learning, they're actually sitting by a window or another kind of light that's canceling out the fluorescent light, that they're not sitting under the fire drill bell, that they're not having to put up with a lot of sensory impact. And I have a lot of uh, professionals who say to me, well, you know, they have to learn how to handle all that stuff because they're going to be out in public and they're going to have to be a part of the community. But here's what I say. I say that we have to look at what is the lesson we're teaching them right now. So if you're teaching them math or you're teaching them uh, functional communication skill, that is the lesson. The lesson is not being able to handle being in a sensory environment that's overwhelming. That's another lesson. And so we have to be really careful about those kind of things. If you have someone who is mainstreamed, then you're, you have to be able to um, look at other aspects like perhaps have him sit in the back row in the corner so he doesn't have people all around him, which could be distracting hearing noises from all around if he has auditory processing issues. Another thing is many people on the spectrum tend to be monochannel, which means they can only use one of their senses at a time. So if a child is in a mainstream class, a general education class, and they walk in and they're told to copy down the assignment from the blackboard, but the teacher starts giving the lesson of the day, most neurotypical students have no problem with that. But usually people uh, with autism will have a real difficult time because they have to look at the board, write that down, look back up, write that down. Meanwhile, they can't hear what the teacher is saying. They can't, they can't process it. So by the time they finish writing down the assignment, they're lost. They have uh, lost the beginning of the lecture, and the next thing you know, uh, they can't keep up with the class. And so solution for something like that is so simple. The teacher obviously must have these lessons written down before she puts them up on the blackboard. If she could just hand 
give a handout to a student such as this, it would decrease his anxiety, and also he would be able to fully pay attention to what she was saying and not focusing on trying to write something down. So there's lots of little things like that, and that's what I find so interesting um, for those who are on the more able end of the spectrum. There's a lot of little things that we can do just to make life easier for them. They seem like easy fixes. And I'm not saying that everything's easy, but little things like that can make life so much better for a student that I think we need to cue into those kinds of strategies. Yeah, and I like your point about what lesson are we trying to teach at this time? Yeah. Or are we trying to teach math? Or are we trying to teach something in a sensory sense? Back east, um, my son started out going to uh, a segregated public school program for autism, and I waited there the first day, and the fire alarm went off at 11.30 in the morning, and it, it just made me, you know, jump right out of my body. Right. It was so loud and piercing. It was it was absolutely uncalled for to be like that. You know what? That's where they had my son's desk was under the fire drill bill, bell, and also under the intercom that sounds the alarm when it's time to change classes. Mm. I mean, you know, and I know my son isn't the only person who has auditory processing difficulties. Yeah, <laughs> I said these children have auditory hypersensitivity. The other thing is we have these first grade and kindergarten and second grade classrooms, the mainstream classrooms, which are just full of colorful things on the wall. Even some of the special ed classrooms are that way. If someone has a visual processing challenge, there's no way they can focus on their work in front of them when they have so much stuff on the walls. And even Temple Grandin always says it was easier in the 50s because the 50s you had plain classrooms. You know, there wasn't so much stuff up on the walls. Mm, good point. Well, after making sense of the world, this leads you to Chapter 2, Communication. Right. So uh, I did want to say that after the interviews, that the three top abilities that the people had the most concerns about and problems with was sensory processing, communication, and safety. And so that's why those, had, those three skills are the first ones you come across in the book. Communication is a challenge, and it's it presents itself differently for depending on where you are on the spectrum. So for someone like my son, it's trying to find a way to communicate. It's trying to find somehow to let people know what it is that you are able to learn and what you know and what you want and get your needs met. For someone who has Asperger's, for most of us, they may seem like, wow, they can uh, carry on great conversations. Uh, they're very able but many of them have difficulties in understanding things like the second meaning, um, metaphors, the hidden curriculum. And hidden curriculum is things that uh, people sh that's understood that people should take for granted. So, for example, if I tell my daughter, uh, if she's picking her nose and I say, oh, don't pick your nose, my daughter would understand that that means don't pick your nose in public. And she would understand that she's allowed to pick her nose in the bathroom. But someone with Asperger's, would go, oh, my gosh, that means I can never, ever, ever, ever pick my nose. Okay. And uh, we will continue with that thought when we come back with Chantal to the Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. And thanks to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. And we're back with Chantal Steele-Kira, author of Autism Life Skills. We were talking about the skill communication. And Chantal, how do you think that the first one we were talking about, sensory processing works into communication, and how do you think communication help leads to help, uh, help in uh, lending to the areas of safety, self-determination, et cetera? Well, uh, first of all, I have to say that for people who don't have an appropriate way to communicate, they're going to communicate with their behavior. And so uh, if they're having a lot of sensory processing issues, because that can make be very painful for people, uh, then you're going to have a lot of behaviors. And a lot of times we focus on getting rid of the behaviors instead of focusing on giving people a form of communication. And a very good example of how important communication is, is Sue Rubin, who's the writer and star of the documentary Autism is a World. She's a nonverbal autistic college student and disability advocate, and she often speaks about that impact that communication has on behavior. She used to have really bad behaviors, and once she started to learn how to communicate and she had a system of communication, she could communicate that way, and then she was able to help write her own behavior plans, and it really had a very positive effect on her behavior. And that kind of um, goes into safety, too, because, well, we all know that nonverbal individuals are at high risk 
of sexual and physical abuse just by the fact that they're victims that cannot, cannot communicate what has happened to them. And even if, even if individuals are able to communicate in those situations, are they, do you think they're, they're taken seriously often enough? Um, I don't think that they are taken seriously often enough. Uh, but again, when you look uh, at situations of abuse, whether someone is autistic or not, I find that oftentimes the victims are not taken seriously enough because uh, there's always this burden of proof, which of course you need to have proof to make sure that um, innocent people aren't being charged with um, things that they haven't done. But it seems to be a power struggle too, that uh, if people, it's always the people who don't have power who are not believed. Mm -hmm. And so if you have someone who's nonverbal, um, who are you gonna believe? The person who's nonverbal and looks retarded or the person who's walking, talking, breathing? But as you so eloquently um, referred to earlier, um, these individuals, these children are every bit as intelligent and have ideas, and they, they just they need this way to communicate. And you uh, so greatly helped Jeremy start more effectively communicating. I believe he was 14 years old? That's correct. He was 14 when he started to learn to communicate. Um, I mean, he always communicated a little bit with, he had a few words and he had a little bit of peck, which helped him do the three-word sentence like I have, uh, you know, or I want cheese. But he never was able to express his, uh, thoughts and communication. And so it was a long process for him to start typing, uh, but also he, all the years that he was growing up, he was mainstreamed for a part of his day. So he always sat in and listened to a lot of academic topics, and he was listening. So when we did start to do some communication with him and teach him to spell, it went a lot quicker in terms of learning the academics. And uh, the teacher, his teacher at high school, could see which subjects Jeremy had sat through in classes with because he was picking up those subjects very quickly and reaching his goals, whereas the subjects that he hadn't sat through, you know, he needed a lot more time to learn. But um, safety is such an issue for even those who are verbal um, because what happens is many of the Students who are verbal don't have a one-on-one aid, so they don't have a personal bodyguard, and they end up getting into bullying situations because they don't always understand what's going on, and sometimes people don't realize that they have Asperger's. They know that this person's odd and different, but they don't understand why because sometimes there isn't that disclosure from parents or from the school system. And so when they realize that this person is gullible, they end up asking um, this person to do things or they end up teasing the person or putting them in unsafe situations. And so it's really difficult, but that's why educating peers as well as educating the person on the spectrum is very important, and that should be started really early. Right. I, I've heard of a peer pal program down in Florida um, that was developed by a BCBA and uh, that a mom is, is helping greatly with. Um, and that helps educate the peers. So that's a really good idea. So what are the different areas related to safety that need to be taught or that parents need to be aware of? Um, well, you mentioned bullying. To, uh -huh. 
I mentioned bullying, but I also uh, think that especially in high school, parents need to make sure that their uh, children have um, sex education. They understand about what sex is, which acts are sexual acts, because I've heard of quite a few instances where in the high school arena, um, a girl who has Asperger's and wants to be friendly with some popular girls, the popular girls know that she's a little bit odd. They tell her to go and have um, oral sex with a guy at school, and this person with Asperger's, she hasn't been taught that oral sex is a sex act. I know this sounds really weird, but that's this is the truth. I've heard this story a few times. And so she'll go and have that, do that, and then come back and relate that to the girls that she wants to be friends with. And so this is a kind of abuse because they're putting her in a situation. But if this girl knew that what she was doing was a sex act and it's not an appropriate sex act, in the high school, you know, in that situation, then she would not be performing it. She wouldn't be so gullible as to follow through. It's just one example, but it's a good one. And then there's also the aspect of making sure that people don't put themselves in unsafe situations, such as um, checking to see if it is a good idea to go meet someone that they don't know uh, in an uncrowded area or to get in somebody's car. And so... They should be taught to have a safe person, say a neurotypical that they can trust, that they can say, is it a good idea for me to do this? And that person can advise them to say, no, you know, if you're going to meet somebody, meet them in a crowded coffee shop at noon. Don't go meeting them at 8 o'clock at night, you know, down a dark alley. You know, all these kinds of situations, all the things that you would think that we have common sense for, they don't usually have common sense for, and they need to be taught the common sense. Mm. Well, I would imagine that um, things like bullying or wanting pure acceptance and then uh, being told things to do that aren't good for you, um, these all also touch upon self-esteem, which is the next chapter in your book. So what are the different ways we can foster positive self-esteem and not engender negative self-esteem? Well, it's interesting because I found that there was a pattern of all the ones, most of the people that I interviewed had really good self-esteem, and here was the pattern. is First of all, they had parents or caretakers who really cared for them. So they believed in them, and they brought them up uh, to accept themselves, even though, you know, they didn't stop trying to help them or find strategies um, to help them with their challenges. They accepted the fact uh, that they were who they were. Uh, the second thing was, uh, to have a relationship with an adult who is not a parent, so not emotionally tied to the family, because even though your parents love you, you still feel that emotional uh, pull of, you know, perhaps you're not doing as well as you should be. It's, it's more emotional than neutral. And so having an adult that you have a neutral relationship with in terms of emotions was helpful. That could be a mentor or a therapist or a teacher uh, or a you know, a home tutor. And the third one was relationships with neurotypical peers as well as autistic peers. And that was really important because the neurotypical peers, because, you know, you want to be part of society and uh, they do want to have relationships with other people, but also autistic peers because they can um, feel like they know other people are going through the same things that they are. So being able to have this self-esteem, I would think, would naturally lead into being able to 
um, have more satisfying social relationships and have fun? That's correct. So uh, more satisfying social relationships. You can't have healthy self uh, relationships unless you have healthy self-esteem. And this whole thing of having fun, um, it's actually pursuing interest for those on the spectrum because um, fun for them is not exactly what fun is for us. Can you explain this? Yeah. So, for example, uh, maybe when you're little uh, or when you have a child who's little and you're a dad, you want to play soccer with your child because that's something you enjoyed. Well, your child with autism may not give a darn about soccer, and they may really be into, uh, you know, counting or lining up trains and uh, by color or by number or by sequence or by the type of train. And that, for them, is an interest that they're having. And that, for them, is fun. But for you, it's not fun. But we need to connect with our children in ways that is fun for them because that's how you're going to create a bond. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try and teach turn-taking games and games where we're sharing um, information with because that's going to help teach them other skills. But when we just want to have fun and have a bond with somebody, we should really be doing what they want to be doing. And many of the things that they do are things that have a purpose. So, for example, uh, if they're lining up the trains, or, uh, for example, Stephen Shore talks about how he used to um, have shortwave radio and he used to listen to all these different um, radio stations all over the world. You know, that's kind of, uh, it, it doesn't sound like fun to most people, but that's fun to him. And it's something eventually that can also be uh, a skill that can lead to a job. Another thing Stephen Shore used to do was to take apart watches and put them back together again. Take apart watches, put them back together again. That was transferred into a skill of fixing bicycles. And then that became a way for him to earn money while he was going to college. And so uh, sometimes the fun part is it doesn't look like uh, what fun is for us. I would think conversely, if you criticize the way the child is enjoying uh, him or herself, it would knock down her self-esteem. Correct. Yeah, and we'll be back with Chantal Steele-Cura. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten, and Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Jack, he'll get you right back to your Jack presents Jack LaLanne Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLanne and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLanne, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLanne Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Hypnosis, what a completely misunderstood word. There are all kinds of myths and superstitions surrounding the concept of hypnosis. The truth is that it can be used safely in practices of health and wellness. Join consulting hypnotist Jennifer Van Wee for the program Hypnosis for Positive Life Changes and learn how to experience relaxation to enhance your ability to cope with stress and other complicated issues. Hypnosis for Positive Life Changes airs Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Chantal Cecil Kira, author of Autism Life Skills, and we were talking about self-esteem. We were talking about safety, about helping your child or teenager pursue interests and have fun. And now, Chantal, let's talk about self-regulation. I'm not sure that a lot of that everybody knows what that means. Well, self-regulation is really about being able to control yourself, and that's something we all need to learn. But it's kind of difficult for people on the spectrum because, as we talked about the sensory processing and how people can get overloaded by their senses, um, they need to be able to figure out what the triggers are that makes them overwhelmed, that gets them into that state, so then they can either avoid those situations or else learn techniques and strategies for dealing with them. So there's that kind of sensory overload, and then there's emotional overload of anxiety too, which means that, for example, when I talked about how Brian King talked about trying to move from classroom to classroom uh, when he went into junior high, it creates anxiety to know you're going to have all these people brush up against you. So you have to have methods to know before you're going to have a situation of overwhelm where, you know, kids that are having temper tantrums, for example. And so as they get older, they learn to to have self-awareness and to feel what it's like before uh, they get to the top of that trigger and there's no return so that then they can calm themselves down. So that's really what self-regulation is about. Well, I think oftentimes children may be given what's called a time out. Do you think that this is something that where it's better for uh, adults to be sensitive to a child's sensory needs so that they don't become overwhelmed, anxious, and not be able to self-regulate? Or 
do you think it's more important for a child to be able to express in some manner, I need a timeout, or both? So, well, first what you do is that um, you observe the child, and then um, you, you're going to be noticing when, you know, you can take data and notice how often he seems to get all hyped up that he can't handle. You put in his schedule those, what we call them sensory breaks and timeouts. Then eventually you get them to learn to ask for a break. You know, by either if they can't verbalize it, they can hand a break card. So, for example, now my son, he sits in two-hour classes at the high school. Well, sometimes after an hour, he can't sit there anymore or an hour and a half. And so he will hand over. He could spell it out, but that would take too long. He hands the break card to his aide, and he goes out, and he goes for a little walk, and he comes back in and sits down. So that's kind of how he handles it. So it's really a process, first, of understanding giving them the breaks so they realize the breaks make them feel better, and then giving them control as they get older of when they have and take those breaks. I guess I guess what I mean is that a time-out situation should never be used as a means of uh, punishment, but should be used as a right. situation of respect in a, yeah, in a respectful manner. Helpful. I should have clarified that because I, we're get, I don't want the semantics to get um, in the way. Yeah, if we, I don't mean timeout as a timeout uh, when we are punishing people. And, again, that's where Temple Grandin talks about n- knowing the difference between bad behavior and behavior that's caused by sensory overload. Uh-huh. So if it's bad behavior, you know, maybe people have a system where they're doing timeouts because that's what works for that individual. But, actually, I wouldn't call it timeout when it's, uh, for a sensory overwhelm. That's why I think of a sensory break, even if it is mm-hmm. an effective timeout, uh, because it's not anything to do with punishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think that you had um, expressed it suboptimally. I was just explaining what I had meant. Right. Um, yeah, right. I, I think if we're always I looking agree. at the individual from a respectful standpoint, um, rather than being impatient or thinking things are a problem, if we're always trying to accommodate the individual and help them function better, uh, we'll be on the right track. Um, Now, what do adults on the spectrum say about the area of independence? Well, that's interesting. Um, In fact, one of the persons I interviewed, Zoja Zaks, who has written uh, a book, she actually talks about the fact that parents just need to get it through their heads that if you, have, if you are the parent of a child with a developmental disability, including autism, you're going to be parenting for a lot longer. And so once you accept that fact, then you don't get as stressed out about the independence factor because many will become independent, but some of them need more time. And I find that that's true from the reports I'm getting from parents with children with Asperger's. And I find that a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're trying to rush through the academics uh, when they're really smart through the high school years, and when they graduate, they haven't had time to develop the life skills. That's why I wrote this book, because we need to be doing those life skills all through as well as the academics. And um, self-sufficiency, the hardest parts for many of the people for being independent and self-sufficient was uh, challenges in executive functioning, which is being able to get and stay organized, and also, of course, sensory processing because a lot of uh, what you need to do in terms of chores and establishing routines uh, means that you have to deal with a lot of uh, sensory issues. 
the organization is tied in with independence and it's tied into teaching job skills to children? Yeah, that's also a part of it because uh, job skills are very necessary and that's you can't be independent unless you have a means of earning an income. And so job skills tie into the independence and all the things that you learn to be independent at home and at school, like organizing your schoolwork, is all what you need to also earn a living because you need to be organized no matter what kind of job that you do. When we talk about self-advocacy skills, what do we mean by that and how can you teach these? Does that go back into self-esteem and et cetera, communication? Yes. Self-advocacy is part of self-esteem and communication, and usually a lot of people start thinking about this when they're in high school. We should be doing this when they're little, and when you're little, you can start self-advocacy by ensuring, for example, that a child in a restaurant is ordering specifically what they want. So if they're nonverbal, if they can do it by pointing to or handing icons, but that they are communicating to the waitress and they're getting what they want so that they show that their voice has an impact on another person. They... Uh, it's so much more powerful when they realize that they can have a voice and it can be listened to. And as they get older, they do that not just for deciding on food, but on deciding on issues at school. Can you give us an example of how Jeremy was able to self-advocate in a situation at school and how he was able to start uh, exercising job skills? Yes. Okay, so how he was... um, That's two different examples. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. So self-advocacy. One day Jeremy came home really agitated, and it was over Thanksgiving break. And he wasn't sleeping, and he was very agitated. And so I asked him, you know, what was going on. And he said that he didn't like school. He didn't like the teacher. The teacher said he was retarded. And I knew he had a substitute teacher, but I also know that for Jeremy, teacher means anyone who's in the school system helping him. So... um, he, uh, I said, well, tell me what's going on. So he told me a conversation he overheard uh, from the substitute teacher telling his one-on-one aide not to work on the academics that were part of his IEP uh, because of his bad behavior and because uh, he couldn't learn anything. And so I wrote everything down, and I uh, called the aide, and I said, here's a conversation that Jeremy told me it took place at school, and she laughed because she said, you know what, that's word for word what this teacher said. And there's no way that I could have known wow. that. And yeah. so I said, instead of me writing a letter, I said, Jeremy, why don't you write a letter to the teacher and telling her how you feel? So he wrote this little letter about how he was writing a book, and he was not only going to talk about people that were helpful, but people like her that give professionals a bad name, and how he didn't like the fact that even though learning academics was part of his IEP, she was telling the tutor or the aide not to do that with him. So that's a good example of self-advocacy at work. Well, Chantel, I think we're going to have to save the example of how Jeremy was able to uh, start in the job world himself uh, for another show where people can read this in your book, Autism Life Skills. Um, You also have a booklet on your website uh, about job skills, and, uh, again, Chantal's website is www.chantal, C-H-A-N-T-A-L, Cecile, S-I-C-I-L-E, hyphen Kira, K-I-R-A, dot com. And if you have any questions, uh, you can email me at tiaranga at autism1 
www.ghostbookshop.org. Well, Chantal, I want to thank you for providing your practical, easy-to-understand books that really draw upon and respect the experience of those on the spectrum and that you've time-tested with your own son to his great benefit. Thank you for having me on the show, Terry. And thank you to our sponsor, Medica. For questions about this program, please email me again at tiaranga at autism1.org. My guest next week, October 14th, Dr. Richard Fry. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.